Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of JM Rewind. JM Rewind gives us an opportunity to check out some of the recent guests who've been with us at JM in the AM. During the nine days, Rabbi David Bashevkin joined us for a discussion about a variety of topics. You'll find them very interesting. Here he is next on JM Rewind on the Nahum Siegel Network. Rabbi David Bashevkin is in our studio. This has been a um, widely publicized and much talked about appearance. For him here at JM in the AM, he has many titles, many, many titles. In fact, a rarity for me, instead of uh, uh, using his um, his uh, titles that we could find on the web and introducing him, I will introduce him and then ask him to go through his titles with us here at JM in the AM. Rabbi David Bashevkin, welcome back Great to, to JM in the AM. Thank you so much for having you me. You have many distinguished monikers. You have many ways that you are referred to and introduced in the and introduced by in the Jewish world. Do you have any preference for how we should introduce you to this audience this my, morning? My preferred professional uh, pronouns are up to whoever I am, uh, whoever's introducing me. <laughs> Uh, first and foremost, I'm the director of education for NCSY. And doing quite a job at that. How long have you held that position? Um, closing in on 10 years. Wow. And I am an instructor at Yeshiva University. I teach in Sci Sims and in IBC. And I am a columnist for Mishpacha Magazine. Right, with, a, uh, with a, an interesting take on many things Jewish. On a regular basis, what is that? Every other week, every third week, what is yeah, that? Yeah, sometimes it's every week. In the summer, we've been moving to every uh, every other week. Right. Does it? Does it? I don't know. Does it bother you or trouble you that when that when you're introduced or when you're you know when we're starting a conversation, I find it to be I don't know either either have some type of levity aspect to it or some type of humorous. Aspect where there's some for some reason this does not. I just want you to know this doesn't happen with most of my guests. But when you're here, there's a certain energy. A, I don't want to say comical energy, but a certain. I don't know. Just uh, there's like you just. It's sort of one of those you just don't know what's going to happen. Like you're anticipating something <laughs> really good and 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 funny that might emerge from this conversation. That that is uh, giving me a lot of anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, I I look at humor writing as the greatest badge of honor and the greatest opportunity of all of the things that I do. I think the thing that is the most difficult, the most challenging, and the most exciting uh, is making people smile. Interesting. And some I, I was told by my staff that there are people now trying to imitate Rabbi David Bashevkin, and that yesterday on Twitter there was something. There was someone who actually went ahead and. You know, and and published on Twitter what they felt was a you know a good line in reference to something to do with the Jewish community, and actually tagged you in it. However, it works on Twitter in order to get your approval to see if to see if in fact that person is following properly in your footsteps or not. Are you aware of this or not? Yeah, we we've developed a very sweet community on uh, on Twitter uh, hashtag from Twitter. Uh, I tweet on the name Dbash Ideas. And I'm I'm a big believer in that community because it's a very niche community, but it's a place where uh, Hasidim and Hever from Lakewood and Yeshiva University and uh, Woodmere, five towns, are able to uh, smile and wink at some of the oddities and uh, just peculiarities of our community in a very sweet and playful way. 
Uh, but humor gives people a, a really wonderful lens to to be optimistic and playful without descending into cynicism. But when there's a photo, for instance, and the, not descending into cynicism, that may be you, you may be overreaching. I'm on working. That one. Right, I'm walking right on that line. <laughs> you can say that again. I have a balancing beam. <laughs> so when I, there, uh, so for instance, when there is a picture of uh, Jared and Ivanka, right, and 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 you you see a photo, and they have a certain type of expression. You use that opportunity to go ahead and comment about Shidduchim in the Jewish community, right? Yeah, I think with that photo, uh, if it serves me correctly, I think I captioned it something like uh, Five Towns Machatanim <laughs> meeting their West Hempstead Machatanim for the first time. <laughs> Now, uh, now, only a certain group or number of people will be able to understand that reference. Yeah, but but that's the beauty of humor. Humor is an insider's game. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're able to you're able to create niche communities by kind of carving out who gets the joke, who's in, and who's out. That's in any who you know who could change a light bulb. I have a, a friend, S. Ross, who uh, wrote a brilliant article about the comedy's role in shaping communities and. The reason why comedy works is because it has an insider community of who gets the inner contours of the joke and the social situation that you're commenting on. And that's why I love connecting to people this way because you're really building communities. So the the less people who get it, the happier you are. Uh, in, in, in a way, I mean, there's something universal about uh, about humor, but you know, if you get a community that kind of is able to really chuckle and smile at something, aside from bringing people joy, you've created this kind of insider world that people are able to enjoy some of the silliness of their own uh, culture and community. Got it. Rabbi David Bashevkin is here. All right. Um, Lot, lots of stuff to cover. I'm already thinking what's gonna what what will be our topics the next time you're here. So you can imagine Uh-oh. that I see this as a series of conversations. How is the book doing? You wrote a book that you featured here with us in an interview. In fact, the title of the book featured the word synagogue spelled in a completely different way, with the with the first syllable being S I N. How is the book doing out there? in the uh, global Jewish market. Really, really excellent. Uh, people have responded really well to it. I'm communicating to a lot of, uh, uh, of readers who have been picking it up. Um, it, just, it, it just had a renewed interest because of the passing of uh, Rav Nussan Kamenetsky Zatzal, who was the writer of Making of a Gadol, uh, and his book got into a little bit of trouble for the way that it depicted some Jewish leaders. And the opening to my book discusses uh, some of the stories we tell about Jewish leaders. And it's kind of renewed some interest recently in the book. I expect that more people will be picking it up as we get closer to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Uh, but that that renewed interest in making of a gadol has had people kind of looking up and saying, how do we look at the faults of our leaders and Rabbanim? Speaking of walking the line, do you have a... I don't know if I can call it a definitive opinion, but do you have a guideline that you could share with us, like a summary or guideline about how to react or how to discuss the faults of our Torah leaders? Is there a rule of thumb? The analogy that I have given before is uh, I think that discussing the faults of our leaders is the same way that you educate children about the faults of their own parents. Uh, nobody sits down a seven-year-old and says, 
mommy and daddy, uh, we don't really like each other, and we're 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 in the middle of a big fight, and daddy let me down, and we're having uh, financial difficulties, and we've got a lot going on, and we're really stressed out, and you know this marriage might fall apart any second right now, so buckle in. No, nobody would tell a seven-year-old that, but as you get older, uh, you start to realize that the parents who you thought were perfect and you know had this idealistic uh, everything was great about them were actually quite human. And as you evolve, you realize that the humanity of your parents doesn't diminish their greatness. It actually makes them even more astounding of what they were able to overcome and what challenges they were able to surmount. And I think the same way with the Gedolim. When you talk about, when you talk with an eight-year-old about rabbis and Jewish leaders, I wouldn't sit them down and tell them every, sing, every single error and mistake that they made. But as they get older, I think that it is healthy because it, it develops, A, a sense of humanity of our leaders and teachers, and, and that only makes them greater. Uh, we don't learn Torah from angels. We learn Torah from... Uh, from human beings, and I think that's it doesn't diminish their stature, it only enhances it. But you know the trend is not that way. You know in 2019, you probably, especially with the group that you described follows you, you probably have, you probably speak to many people who hesitate to leave the, you know, Torah giants, our perfection type of, uh, of, of viewpoint. I think our community has, has really turned the corner on this. Uh, Even among the right wing, what absolutely. we would call the right wing. There is such a renewed interest in Jewish history, uh, tr- true true Jewish history, really understanding the inner contours and lives of our gedolim. If you walk into any uh, yeshiva, you will see that the, the books of Jewish history, they might be you know underneath the shtender, they might be you know underneath the, the dorm room uh, mattress, but they are absolutely there. It reminds me of a top... On Shushan Purim, I published a top five of top five, top five list that Mishpacha will not let me publish. Mm. And one of the top five lists was top five Jewish studies books that get yeshiva guys into academic Jewish studies. And there's a whole list of them. Could you, you give me one or two? Sure. Um, I mean, certainly the writings of, uh, of Mark Shapiro. All really? The yeshiva, all the yeshiva guys read this. They, 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 they know that stuff. They're interested in it. Uh, for me, it was the PhD of Rav Hutner's daughter, Buria David Hutner, nice. uh, from Colombia. She did a PhD on the Maharats Chayas, Rav Tzihers Chayas, uh, from Colombia. And just his life, he was kind of like the first uh, proto-modern Orthodox Jew. Every yeshiva guy has a PDF and a copy of that. And then, <laughs> you know, it might be hidden, but it's better than some other stuff that they could be hiding. And if that's what they do in their spare time, it definitely gives them a greater appreciation of the lives of uh, of, Jew- of our Jewish leaders. Did anybody write a haskama to her PhD thesis? <laughs> no, there was not a not a typical haskama, <laughs> but she, I do believe she thanks her father in there. <laughs> because, because you did publish recently uh, something, again, that I think such a large percentage of your readership in Mishpacha wouldn't get. Most people are not familiar, right? Most regular people, men and women, I don't want people to think I'm just singling out women, men and women are not really that familiar with the whole world of Haskamah's approbations for Jewish books that have been written in history, right? You yeah, agree with that? Yeah, and I, I wrote a, uh, a top five list for Mishpacha, but you're not giving Mishpacha readers uh, enough credit. One thing that I have found, and it is to their credit, is that they have built an audience that spans uh, really from coast to coast, whether it's my sister in uh, in Woodmere on her couch Friday night 
or uh, you know, a yeshiva guy in Lakewood who begrudgingly picks it up, uh, you know, and he might, you know, and both coasts get huskamas. They oh. both get it? I, I don't know that they get Haskamas, but once you introduce them to that world, you right. know, I did a top five list on the top five top types of Haskamas right. that you get. You know, some people get these <laughs> passive-aggressive Haskamas <laughs> that are critiquing the work itself. Right. Uh, but opening up that world of Jewish studies with a wink and a little bit of humor, I think, is a really helpful way to uh, Does to it educate. bother you that I'm enjoying this at a, at a humorous level? No, it's my greatest bother. joy. No, it's funny. You know, I go to weddings sometimes. Yeah. And some people talk about my column, uh, particularly in Mishpacha, the humor column, and they'll talk about it, you know, not not just laughing, but almost a little cynically. They'll be like, oh, how's that little cute little column you're doing there? <laughs> and I always give them this challenge. I said, do me a favor. Lock yourself in a room for six months. Try to write one column that will make someone smile. I don't think you can do it. That's right. Humor is very challenging. And it's I told you that one of the things that one of my sons likes to do with me is try to add to your, or not just add, but come up with other subjects that would be you know appropriate for your oh, top yeah. five. I, yeah. I got a email. Uh, I think the email address, I forgot, it, it was from a dorm in the mirror. It was like <laughs> Rappaport55 at gmail.com. A mere dorm sent me a, a list. The most successful list that I got that was published almost as is was an anonymous woman in uh, woman in Lakewood, a single girl, published a list of top five conversation topics that guys like to bring up on dates. Oh, is that hilarious? And it was just bullseye. She was anonymous, and I tried to set her up after. <laughs> That's great. I love she it. She wouldn't, yeah. Oh, now I remember. It was Joshua Siegel who came up with um, top five top five moments during davening where I, I don't remember how he put it like you're not sure one of them was you know are they going to say tachron you know exactly one of them is it going to be a hey kedusha at mincha please start please start you know? God. yeah absolutely you know i was once davening for the Amud at mincha and i forgot that we we're supposed to make a hey kedusha and, and everybody was you know they saw i started to bow they go no no like that collective groan when you're at a, a baseball game or something and catch that mincha and right. go for the full chazanas. You don't make friends that way. That's for sure. Rabbi David Bashevkin is here. All right. I am I'm a prisoner of the calendar. This is a general statement. I'm a prisoner of the calendar. I can't have you here today and discuss certain topics that I'm dying to discuss with you without doing the calendaric stuff because you're here today and that's why that's why you have to come back at another time so we can finish everything else. That today is Era of the Nine Days, right? So I ask you, do you have any specific analysis about the day before the nine days? Because I, as both a kid as an adult, have witnessed over the years how today is the day that everyone panics and they will not be able to eat meat after a specific, after a specific time. Reminiscent, reminiscent, I've been told, in the five towns how often uh, on the early morning of a fast day, especially during the winter when the fast starts late, where everybody is at Dunkin' Donuts very, very early. <laughs> exactly. If you don't have that large coffee, if you don't have that large coffee before the fast, God knows what may happen. Do you have certain memories of Erev and then the actual nine days? So I, I am a little bit of a uh, a nine days. Uh, cynic when it comes to our obsession with uh, with flashigs. I actually was supposed to get a flashig lunch today that I had to cancel. Whoops! I had to cancel last minute. What a mistake! Yeah, what a mistake. But I one of the things that I commented on once is that how you know a lot of the a lot of dairy restaurants start 
issuing their special nine days menu, and right. I write about this in our in the actual this week's Mishpacha magazine Ooh. column. Uh, my top five is top five morning practices that we might need to shelve, and one of them is I I I I never could stand. The using the nine days as an advertising <laughs> ploy for your special dairy menu. It's like nothing, I want yeah. nothing special. About exactly, it. I want to break the news. Be like, it, your your menu was always nine days friendly, and it was never that special. And in addition to that, it's it's you know the, the irony of you know Jewish history. The nine days are not a special time. The nine days are a very serious and, you know, difficult time, or at least they're supposed to be observed as a, you know, difficult. I mean, people tell me stories that they were in summer camp and you know, had to throw all their clothing on the floor over the nine days just so they could wear it actually during the nine days yeah. and things like you know, and different things like that, you know. Yeah, there's a sweetness to how uh, how the nine days is observed in, in, in sleepaway camp. I think you don't feel it because when you are an adult, you no longer have the concept of instructional swim. Right. For me, the number one way in which morning was observed was just instructional swim. Like, I think it might be worth like... Which was real torture. Exactly. When the three weeks start, people should start swimming twice a day, and then in the nine days, just have instructional swim. And then you'll feel it. Exactly. Then you'll really feel it. Rabbi David Bashevkin is here. So, with all this in mind about the nine days, there are serious elements. I mean, you are the director of education for NCSY. You will be in shul a week from Sunday and likely be sitting through a three- to four-hour Shachris and Kinnis service, correct? Yes. Would you, would you recommend that for the youth in, uh, Jewish youth in 2019? Would you recommend that summer camps, programs, whatever the case may be, utilize that type of presentation on their Tisha B'Av day, or is there a better way, even though, God forbid, some of the you know men over thirteen and women over twelve will not be saying all of Kinnis. Is it possible there's a better way for them to spend the morning of Tisha B'av? It's it's a great question. I am a big believer in the way that our camps have created Tisha B'av, and I think if most people were honest with themselves, uh, most people's most inspiring and powerful Tisha B'av experiences were probably in camp. Uh, it, you know, it may have been, you know, not with the maturity of adulthood and, you know, they came into Eicha carrying some, you know, inflatable couch uh, <laughs> that they set up as if they were sitting by the beach. But at the same time, camps have done an amazing job of bringing the Tisha B'Av experience alive. And the reason why that's so uh, is because of a general shift in the way not just education, but all content works in the age of the internet, which is that we have seen a remarkable shift uh, from content to experiences. Uh, uh, the place where you see this most is in the music industry. It used to be that musicians would release uh, would release an album and then go on tour to promote their album and promote the content of their album. And the model has actually shifted. Nobody makes money off of an album anymore. Certainly don't make money off publishing a book. Mm -hmm. The place where you really make the money and what people want is the concert tour. So you almost produce the album in order to promote the tour. Right. It switched to vice versa. And right. and what that's Well is it publish or perish, right? Correct, right. correctly. But 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 what that's showing you is that there is a shift. The main event is no longer the text or the music album. The main event is the experience, is the concert. And I think what camps do through experiential education by creating these 
indelible moments um, is really investing in experiences themselves, not on more maramokomos and more more source sheets and more of this stuff, but creating these experiential moments that will last with you for the rest of your life. Did you have to address this Tisha above with NCSY? Did you ever like? Is that was that one of the things you had to do in terms of trying to develop a curriculum, or as you said, an experiential curriculum? Uh, that people could use both in the Israel programs and in other areas. I I don't even like the word curriculum. I think curriculum is the kryptonite of a great experiential moment. I think an experiential moment is not tethered to a specific uh, text ne- necessarily, but that's certainly something we think about in NCSY. We actually released this year a special Kinos guide called Erasure for teens, uh, something for them to hold and look at as they go through the Kinos experience. You know, it, it's I've lamented this in the past when you walk into nearly any Svarim store and you ask, uh, you know, where could I find uh, something for little children? Oh, that's in the back. Where can I find your Sifrei Halacha, your Jewish law books? Oh, that's to the right. Where can I find a bar mitzvah gift? Oh, that's to the, you know, all the way in the back. Uh, where can I find machshava, Jewish thought? That's over there. Where can I find something for a teenager? And, and you will by and large get shrugs. We don't really have a teen section in any Jewish bookstore. We don't have people who are publishing and creating content specifically for teens. And I look at the work of NCSY is so to speak, it is that aisle missing in every bookstore is NCSY. We are creating experiences, context, uh, content, and moments for the Jewish teenager that has for far, far too long been neglected um, by the Jewish community. There are thousands of, of students, as you know, of all types, half of them from public school in Israel right now with NCSY. Right? We saw them there mm-hmm. two weeks ago. You know about it. Are, are you ever concerned that the public school youngster who's being introduced to Judaism, you know, through this program, essentially, right? They never had full-time Judaism until they went to TJJ, right? Are, do you worry that they are going to leave this period of time saying, you know, Judaism is so filled with sadness and mourning and, and negativity and we're so downtrodden, and, and, and in addition to that, you know, we were encouraged not to eat certain days, and in addition to that, I couldn't have a hamburger certain nights, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. Does any of that... Not even for a, for a millisecond. Really? And, and no, because the magic of the NCSY experience for public school teens uh, is the fact that while we are led by Rabbanim, Rabbi Sabolovsky is the POSIC for NCSY, the people who are interacting with the teenagers are college students by and large. They're advisors. They're not rabbis. And that helps the experience. And that's why I've heard this from Rav Yaakov Bender, uh, the Manal of Dar Torah, many times, which is why people who decide to commit themselves to an observant life through NCSY are some of the most normal people who transition into the Jewish community. They don't take these, you know, larger than life leaps and abandon their family and all this, all this stuff. They integrate in a very normal and healthy way. And one of the reasons why that's so, aside from the fact that we're dealing primarily with teenagers, which is a very healthy time to kind of make changes in your religious identity, but but the other reason why is because the people who they're building relationships with are college students. It's not a an older rabbi at a totally different stage of their life. It's by and large people who are at the same stage of life as they are. Uh, they might not be as knowledgeable as a rav, and that's fine. So they come out of the experience with a very healthy relationship, a very normal relationship with Yiddishkeit. 
Rabbi David Bashevkin is here. Um, we're obviously starting the nine days. <laughs> That's what we keep emphasizing on this era of Rosh Chodesh. We're then going to get to Elul, Tishrei, etc. Is it easier for an emotionally... Let me put it this way. Is it easier for, for... Let's assume for a moment that there are two general categories of young people. All right, let's assume this. I know there's really 50, 60 categories, but let's assume this too. One... The, the kid who's really cerebral, you know, the one who's very, you know, takes education seriously and, you know, and, and would laugh at a horror movie, you know, really doesn't get excited about, you know, about much. And on the other end, of course, very emotional kids, etc. Does the does the more emotional kid have a much easier time um, with with the whole concept of faith based Judaism, meaning if. If you have two kids and one of them is really turned on by the songs at the Kotel on Tishabov afternoon, and you know, and and does it help? It, it, does that kid have a much easier time maintaining faith in the one above than the more, you know, I've got to I've got to read more about this and figure it out. And it doesn't make sense that God really exists, like the, that type of thing. That's a that's an excellent and great question. I certainly think that. At different ages, it is easier to address some of the emotional, um, maybe less rational components of Yiddishkeit uh, for for a child who's not as inclined for uh, you know more cerebral stuff. As you get older, uh, unfortunately, I think everybody gets a little bit more cerebral, and we lose touch with our kind of uh, emotional disposition. And I think that's that's unfortunate for. Everybody, but I think we have a very rich legacy of I don't want to call it cerebral, but very sub- substantial thinkers who are re-expressing and reintroducing the majesty of Yiddishkeit just in a, in a new dress. I think that you know if the 1960s and 70s were the golden age of modern Orthodox thought and being able to express the depth and the rationalism and the beauty of modern Orthodox thinking to the public, I think we're in a renaissance of people expressing mysticism and Hasidus uh, with a very intellectual and substantial language that would actually resonate with a lot of the cerebral audience. So now is the best is a, is as good a time as any to be a cerebral Jew because you now have access to lines of thought in the Jewish world that otherwise would never have been expressed in more intellectual or academic language. There was something I saw online relating you to Rav Tzadok. That was because my of, of, master's thesis was. I, I always say I, I got a master's in Reb Tzadok, and when people ask me why, I say I did it for the money. <laughs> uh, no, did, my, did that work out? <laughs> yeah, it did not work. Don't 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 go into Reb Tzadok for the money. Um, I, my master's thesis was comparing Reb Tzadok Hakodmi Lublin with uh, Rebbe Nachumi Breslov, and my master's advisor, who was Nifter last summer, we're coming up on his first yard site was Rav Yaakov Elman, who studied briefly under Rav Hutner and was a professor in Yeshiva University for many years. He's the first person who brought the writings of Rav Tzadok, who was, I would almost describe him as a postmodern Hasidic thinker. He died well, that's, in that's 1900. Why I, that's yeah. why I brought it up, because most view him as what we would call a Litvisharov who drifted into Hasidus. Would that be an, an appropriate way of saying it? Yeah, but, but people are using his writing in the most fascinating ways you could ever imagine. Uh, I I was just in Israel and I sat with a uh, professor in Bar Ilan named 
uh, Dr. Joshua Berman, who does uh, studies in, in Bible studies and discusses biblical criticism. He uses Reb Tzadok's writing a great deal in his academic articles explaining uh, how to approach the text of the Torah. It, it's just his – Reb Tzadok was very in tune with a lot of very modern problems and he was able to wed the world of mysticism and the world of kind of more intellectual lundus and his Lithuanian upbringing to really come up with fascinating solutions to a lot of very perplexing problems. But why did that become important to him? In other words, if we have grown up with the with the um, uh, the attitude or the uh, you know the supposition that most great Lithuanian rabbis I don't want to say scoffed, but but were indifferent to Hasidus. Why did it become so important to him? It it came so important to him. He he ne- he doesn't write very much uh, autobiography, but he does have a collection of dreams where he he kind of he wrote down his own dreams at the same time as Freud, um, and uh, he he wrote down his dreams and he discusses a little bit about what he felt was the root of his soul. Uh, if I could speculate, having gone through and read his writings, uh, I think he was drawn to Hasidus because, quite frankly, his his personal life fell apart, and he realized that rationalism and a very sequential approach to life will only take you so far, and that life can break you enough that you kind of have to reach beyond some of the more sequential and rationalistic steps. And his marriage fell apart. He was wandering alone throughout Europe trying to piece together his life. Um, That weighed on him a great deal, and it was during that journey by himself throughout Europe that he decided that some of the scholar and he was already a massive scholar at that point, not because we heard that in Bubba Mises and stories. We have his writings from that period. He was a genius of geniuses. We have his bar mitzvah drusha. We have things that he wrote as a teenager. Um, and he realized that his life became unmanageable and he needed somebody else and a, a greater sense for the mysticism and the veil uh, behind experiential life uh, to help guide him to the next stage. And that's what he did. And, and it's not to say that his life got, got any easier, right. but I think that Hasidic thought made it more manageable. And one could argue that his colleagues, again, using the term literature rabbis, whatever, simply didn't need that. Like it was just, wasn't something that they, that became necessary in their lives. They didn't, may, maybe their life experiences showed them that they, you know, dealt with things differently. Yeah, they dealt with things differently. I think that his life experiences forced him in a direction. And Rapsodok talks constantly about how your life experiences inform your Torah. Right. He was a big believer in that. So is he a Baal Musser? How do we, how do we view him in, in, the, in, in terms of the annals of Jewish scholarship? Uh, no, I would not call him a Baal Musser. Rapsodok was a, uh, a postmodern chassid in, in the sense that he, at his core, was a mystic and chassidic thinker, but he... He allowed Hasidic thinking to address um, problems that otherwise other Hasidic thinkers weren't discussing in the context of mysticism. You know, was, and what's the premise of a comparison to Rav Nachman? Like, what's the oh, that's like a why? great question, Rebbe. Not for for two reasons. A, Rebbe Tzadok wrote a commentary on Rebbe Nachman's works. He never quotes Rebbe Nachman, but he was deeply, deeply influenced by Rebbe Nachman. He lifts words line for line from Rebbe Nachman's svarim that he includes in his own. Uh, Rebbe Nachman was probably uh, one of the first 
to really talk about the absurdity of life, how difficult it can be, and how to allow Torah to inform the deepest, darkest components of life, to allow Torah to reach those crevices, and to allow your personal biography and your intellectual scholarship to be wedded with one another. Rabbi Nachman was the first to do this, and Rabbi Nachman and Rabbi Tzadok went on parallel tracks in a lot of ways and issues that they addressed, though they diverged in some very important ways too. Do, do serious uh, breast of Hasidim, are they familiar with the work of Rabbi Tzadok? Certainly serious ones, but but probably not as much as the writings of of Rabbi Nachman. Interesting, and of course, you know the, the whole Breslov movement has so many different reactions and opinions out there. You know, in yeah, terms of- m- most of the Breslov Hasidim that you see, you know, maybe like dancing on a truck. I don't know <laughs> if I don't know if those are like the scholars of the Breslov movement, but they're certainly a product of of Breslov thought, of what they're trying to reach and, and create. What do you think of uh, 20,000 people being in Uman for Rosh Hashanah? I think there's something very sweet about it. I It's one of my regrets that I have never been there. Really? Yeah. Yes, I have never been there, but I, I wow. believe... It sounds wild and, you know, me wearing a sports jacket <laughs> and jeans and, you know, not clean-shaven because it's three weeks... <laughs> But I, I believe in the message and the story and the power that Rebbe Nachman was trying to share with the Jewish world. What would that be? What would that message be? That the fact that you should never give up hope isn't a choice. It is a fact of life. That so long as you are alive, there is still hope inside you. Similar to Shara Bitachon and things like that. Put, 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 put almost more existential. That Almost more... Uh, uh, I'm going to use a word that is not going to get me invited back. Almost more ontological. <laughs> hope and existence are wedded together. If you are alive, there is still hope inside you. But, but am you. I right, though, that hope and existence really do need to be put in God's hands, though, the whole Sharbi Tachon thing? Or, or yeah. You, so there is some crossover There's there. some crossover there. <laughs> it wouldn't make the top five. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put that in the top five, but sure. Um. What, what, I mean, look, only a few minutes left, of course, and a whole list of stuff I want to discuss with you, but hopefully you'll be back. Uh, it's almost Tishabov. What is your, and, and you've described, or based on this conversation, one can surmise, I don't want to say you described, one can surmise that you have a great appreciation for really the whole gamut of, what's, of what is today's uh, observant Judaism, right? Um, there's no question you have an appreciation for what some people call the right wing. There's no question you have a soft spot in your heart for those who are simply, you know, Shomer Shabbos Jews who in other, otherwise act in a very modern way in a modern society. And certainly, as you did say, you have a great appreciation for modern orthodoxy and its message and, you know, sure. and, and its mission. With that in mind, how do you view this period of mourning that culminates with Tisha B'Av, literally – Every, all of Klal Yisrael sitting Shiva, right? That's what Tisha B'Av is. You're literally, you know, you have the Minhagim of Shiva, essentially. And at the same time, yet, over the last 70-plus years, we have this renaissance of a Jewish presence in Israel, uh, a state that one can argue whether it is or is not, you know, the, 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 the type of, of um, established sovereign state that we have read about in our in our traditional readings, I don't want to you know, we'll use, use a very broad a very broad aspect. What are your feelings? Is there can the two survive together nicely, or should there be more of a I don't know compromise between the two positions? What do you think? 
Maybe it's the anxiety talking right now, but I think anybody who, you know, struggles with the contours of life and the difficulties of life, Jewish, non-Jewish, I think life is difficult and life is challenging. And anybody who is in touch with that reality uh, does not struggle with the messaging of Tishabov. Tishabov is about the dissonance between a utopian world that we hope we'll realize, and that's, to me, deeply personal, uh, and the world that we have in front of us. And while you can, you have a lot of appreciation uh, for, the, for the state of Israel and for, the, uh, you know, for all of the political developments that have and happened. Our, and our national state. Yeah, and our national state. All, all, th- there is so much to be thankful for. But to me, mourning is very private. There's a, there, there's, there's an intimacy to mourning. I, I, when I think about Tisha B'Av, I think about the shul that I grew up in in Shari Tefillah with the lights dimmed and the maroon carpet. It's not a, you know, we did get together as a community, but the fact that we were sitting on the floor kind of highlighted the fact that not, we're all kind of alone in this. And, you know, there's this great line that I actually closed my book with uh, from the psychologist named Irving Yalom, where he says, even though everyone is alone in their boat, it's comforting to see the lights inside the other boats bobbing nearby. And that's, to me, the imagery of Tish Above Night, where there's a loneliness to morning, and we get in touch and we allow ourselves to experience that loneliness. And then you look around to the rest of the synagogue and the rest of the shul that you're in or wherever you're listening to Eicha or Kinos and you see the lights of the other boats bobbing nearby and that you realize that this state of loneliness that is life and is the world, the one comfort that we can get from it is the fact that everybody is kind of in this loneliness together. But I might add on a national level that thank God in that same, you know, on, on that same lake or ocean, there is one major light that you know that gives us even greater hope, and that again the you know the the state the the you know small s state that we're in nationally whatever you want to call it but sure you know, sure the, the light sure. is I think the that light that you describe is even greater now let's put it that way absolutely it's it certainly is greater and the emotions that but the emotions that I get in touch with on Tish above uh, will never be satiated. Uh, by any development short of uh, short of the final geula, you know, mm. like the the the, the diff- It's not hard for me to get in touch with that. It could be because I'm a basket case, uh, <laughs> but it's not hard for me to get in touch with that stuff. By the way, the book again that we alluded to, the official title is Synagogue. No, that's it. One word. Synagogue. Yeah, S I N. Agog. Sin and failure in Jewish thought. All right, there you have it. Look up Rabbi David Bashevkin. Finally, you are director of education with NCSY, and we spoke earlier about. Kinnis, uh, about it, the Tisha B'Av morning and the length of Kinnis, etc. How about Shul in general? Does it concern you that we are uh, trying to attract people to to be more serious about their tradition and and per, and you know and being in Shul three times a day, um, Shabbos, Yontav, etc. can be difficult for some of them, especially in this era of instant gratification, social media, always on the phone. Can't concentrate for more than five minutes in shul. Let's put it that way. Does it concern you that today younger people will have much more difficulty concentrating in shul to, compared to the way we did when we were younger? It does, but it doesn't. I, I'm going to get myself into so much trouble. Oh, good. <laughs> I, I have a complicated relationship with shul. I definitely find it uh, difficult to sit through a long shul service. 
the Shabbos meaning that I David in that is beloved, utterly beloved to me. Uh, to is in the young Israel of uh, of Tinek. I dive in the Hashkama minion at seven a.m. and uh, buckle in, ladies and gentlemen. It moves. <laughs> I, I I have a sneaking suspicion. Good, good Balkore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that they skip a couple aliyahs. I'm not sure how they do it. And the Balkore very often is a uh, is a lower east side boy. Oh, really? Sure, sure. But but I have they, to think now. Go ahead. Yeah, you'll, you'll, I'll let you guess it. But I I I think that the as oh Yerucham Yerucham God bless him. <laughs> I have to think for a God second. God bless. He's him. the greatest. He's the greatest. The greatest of all time. And commentary between Elias. Absolutely. He's <laughs> Always a good liner. No, sir. he's the greatest of all time. And now his kids are doing it too. He's he, he's really the goat Balcore. But. One thing I will tell you is that as uh, a younger generation may find shul more challenging, the importance and the payoff of developing a great Shabbos morning routine has never been more central to Jewish life. And I think people mm. who are successful at the art of living develop great Shabbos routines. And my Shabbos routine, where I wake up uh, you know, 6.30 and I get to shul and... I go to you know a fairly quick minion, and then I we have a kiddush, and then I always give a shear after the young gazelle of Tinek. and we've developed such a special chever there. The group of people there are are just the greatest, most have become most of my most beloved friends and people. And when I come home, I mean, I I I skip back to my house, and we have another kiddush in my house with our next door neighbor. <laughs> but that Shabbos morning routine that now it's nine thirty a.m. I'm davened. I had a kiddush. I had a, a shear, and now I'm playing with my kids. If you develop that great Shabbos morning routine, whatever works for you, right. you will find that life and the rest of the week is just incomparably more enjoyable. And a young kid, maybe in consultation with someone like you, could do that, could develop that. Absolutely. You don't have to be married and have a family. Exactly. To do that great Shabbos morning routine, I think, is the key to uh, to modern life. You'll appreciate this, by the way. Mir Tashem, our Benjamin Zufruf, is going to be here in another few weeks. And our shul is pretty, you know, tight, about the size of this room. And but we're expecting a lot of people. So I said to him, I said, "You have one instruction: <laughs> you t- you choose your fastest friend when it comes to Balcori. Whoever whoever lanes that portion of fastest, that's the guy I want up there. You know, what's good for you. You should send uh, Yeruchim an invitation asap. He's, good point. There's no one fast. He's don't, the greatest. Don't know if we have room for him there. Uh, but... He's the greatest. And we don't want to, we don't want you to lose him that job. I mean, come on. Well, is there a backup? There, there, there is there a backup. Maybe we'll take one of his kids. <laughs> Rabbi David Bashevkin, you must come back. I think I said that to you last time. Always a joy to You be must here. come back. There are just too many topics, too many things. We did not even get into one of the articles you've recently written oh, for Mishbacha no. Magazine. Okay, not we'll even one. Back. But this week, if people buy it this week, what did you say the topic was this Top week? five morning practices right. that we might need to shelve. Right. And one and of we, them, the nine days special. And we say it with a wink. <laughs> right. Of course. Well, I wish you a um, an easy, I guess we'd say, nine days in Tisha Thank above, you so much. Or ten days this year. And yes. people should be more accurate, you know? Exactly. This year it's exactly. ten days. And uh, hopefully, I, I hope that before the uh, brand new year, we get the chance to speak again. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Rabbi David Bashev, he's got a big social media presence, by the way, everybody. That's right. He'll be tweeting out this interview once it becomes available. On our, oh, yes. you certainly will. <laughs> once it becomes available on our archives, guaranteed. Rabbi Bashev is going to be sharing this with everybody unless he really does feel that he said something which is going to get him into <laughs> serious trouble. But we'll still try to convince him to do so. Uh, we'll go to Ari Goldwagon, wrap up a Thursday, three weeks format here at JM in the AM.
That was my conversation with Rabbi David Bashevkin, who joined us to discuss all those interesting topics recently on JM in the AM. Up next is Jenna Beltzer. My conversation with her was about the OU Initiative Accelerator. She's the founder of the program and gave us all the information that uh, people need to uh, apply to uh, the OU for a grant for the OU Initiative Accelerator. Jenna Beltzer, our recent guest. Here she is on JM Rewind at the Nahum Siegel Network. With us live via telephone is Jenna Beltzer. She's founding director of the OU's Impact Accelerator. Uh, the Orthodox Union has launched the application process for the second cohort of its Impact Accelerator program to rapidly identify and invest in ventures addressing current and future Jewish communal interests. Uh, Jenna Beltzer, welcome to JM in the AM. Good morning, Malcolm. Thank you so much for having me back again. A pleasure. Now in its second year, I'm very excited to be speaking about the OU Impact Accelerator. Um, as you mentioned, we're looking to invest in new Jewish nonprofits over a 12-month program, which will include mentorship and education and training. Um, and we just opened the second application process, actually, this, this July, and it's open until September 5th this year. How did it do the first time around? How do you look back and evaluate how this effort went the first time you did it? Thank God. So we, we selected five ventures last year, and we worked with them over a 12-month um, education period where each of the organizations came into the OU to our headquarters, and we had four on-site sessions that were three days each, and we had seminars on running a nonprofit, operations, budgeting, um, fundraising, everything that you can imagine that is necessary in order to run a nonprofit successfully is also really run a business successfully. Um, each of the organizations has grown tremendously. Some of them have, you know, more than doubled or tripled their fundraising. Some of them have more than doubled and tripled their, um, their client reach. So really, thank God, we've seen amazing success. Um, from the from the organizations that were selected from this first round, and we're very excited to be back in um, back in it for our second cohort this year. All right, the first one I remind everybody uh, the ones that were the I don't know what do we call them winners <laughs> those were, that were designated for this program. They're definitely winners in our eyes, so that's, <laughs> that's just fun sure. to call them that. <laughs> <laughs> so the first time around, the Chama Comfort dealing with families and supporting families who've suffered miscarriage, stillbirth, or infant loss, Grow Torah, developing educational Torah garden programs for Jewish schools and organizations, Work At It, helping at-risk youth, uh, Imadi, empowering individuals and families facing mental health difficulties, and Torah Anytime, enabling Jews who access Torah lectures from a wide array of speakers uh, via the Internet. And you're saying every one of these you've watched over the last year uh, grow, become bigger, have a better fundraising base, and really take advantage of the fact that they were teamed up with you through this process. Exactly. They totally have. So there's really different, um, a few different components to the, the education process that we have. I like to think of the accelerator in three different separate phases. So we have the selection process, which we're going through now. Right. Um, we have the education process, and then we have what we call graduation, which is coming up soon, which will be um, a demo day for them to showcase the organizations, as well as, you know, a continued alumni community where we'll have continued growth and learning. Jenna, but as part oh, of the ed- sorry, go ahead. As part of the education process, we have um, we, so we pair them with mentors, professional mentors, and people who have been successful in our community to provide them kind of one-on-one advice for specific things that they need. We also have seminars, like I mentioned, at the OU, where they learn as a group um, and really as a cohort about different topics that 
are more general and everyone would need in order to grow. And then also having the OU um, really as a backing and to be able to connect with the different departments, the different specialties. And the OU itself has had, you know, 120 years, 121 years now of running a successful nonprofit. So being able to leverage the resources and the experience that the OU has had has really, I think, what has informed each of these organizations for their, um, for their own growth. And more than anything, what we've seen is that learning from each other and building this community of practice, really, between the, these nonprofit founders who are doing all amazing work in our community but now are able to connect and share their own skills and, and talents has been really wonderful as well and really added to a lot of their growth, too. Jenna Belzer is with us. I don't want to put you on the spot, but do you have any recollection how many applicants you had last year? Yes, we had 57 um, applicants last year, and we chose five. Um, organizations. And already this year, we opened the application on July 15th. And like I mentioned, it's closing um, September 5th this year. And the application is available on our website, ou.org slash accelerator. And we've already had over 100 people who've requested to apply. So mm. people, you fill out our application request saying just briefly what you do, um, you know, your contact information, et cetera. Then you get sent the long form email, the long form application. And we've already had over 100 of those in just a few weeks. So it's very <laughs> exciting to see um, to see the program grow and, and God willing, amazing uh, ventures come through again. Should one study the five winners from last year in order to get a perspective of what you and the judges might be looking for this time around? Uh, They for sure should study them, I think, just in terms of thinking of, you know, each of the organizations, more than anything, they kind of they fit within the the main um, criteria of what we're looking for. So we're looking for Jewish nonprofit entrepreneurs who are catering to the North American Jewish community, um, ideally who are in somewhat of a startup stage, so one to four years old. They're not just an idea, um, you know, have an idea and have not gotten started, and they're not too mature that they really have a lot of the tools that they already need to go. Um, and they're, they're addressing critical issues of our community through innovative solutions. So I think by studying and looking through the organizations that we chose, you would, you would definitely see some of that. Um, I think even just seeing their growth over there could be encouraging. And definitely, I know, um, I know that each of the organizations and the founders as well would be happy to speak with anyone um, who's interested in applying if they, you know, if they don't find enough information on our website and want to hear it firsthand. I think I could set them up with, with a few people to speak about the experience. I, I got to tell you, you've, ex- you've really explained this well because, uh, you know, there are people out there wondering if what they're doing, you know, again, how long they've been in existence. You recommended one to four years, the type of work they're doing. Are they based in North America, helping communities, you know, within the confines of this continent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? I, I think these are really important guidelines. Now, anybody out there who feels that they, in fact, fall within these guidelines, I strongly recommend, as do you, I'm sure, Jenna, that they get to the website, ou.org slash accelerator. They have an opportunity to be awarded a $25,000 grant and, in addition, get all this help from the OU and really uh, get assistance in helping the effort or and or the organization uh, grow uh, over the next year, and uh, and applications are due by September the 5th, as you mentioned, uh, ou.org slash accelerator. Again, anybody out there who, if you're operating within the uh, uh, confines of these guidelines, uh, you got to be nuts not to uh, not to apply and uh, try to get the, both this grant and all the help that the OU is offering. I think that's a pretty direct way of saying it, huh? <laughs> Very direct. Thanks for the. You gotta be. For the plug. You gotta Perfect. be crazy if you're in existence for one to four years and you're trying your hardest to have an impact on the Jewish community in North America. You gotta be crazy not to apply and see if both financially and in terms of support 
uh, you're going to end up getting a lot of help. All right, ou.org slash accelerator. All the information is there, the application, et cetera. Uh, applications are due by September the 5th, and we are strongly recommending to anybody that falls within the confines of these guidelines to get to it ASAP. Jenna Belcher, I'm assuming after September 5th, you have a lot of work choosing the winners. Then after that, I guess you end up setting up all these support systems for these organizations, right? Exactly. Yes, yeah. that's uh, the the work is is definitely um, is waiting for us now. But it's, it's very exciting work to see even just the people who you know we obviously are very excited about the people who we select for the cohort. But even just not, um, you know, we do try to help with different resources or just when things come up, we try to connect people with different things. Um, so it's exciting to see all the amazing work that people are doing in order to really help our community and to reach out and. To, to make the community, um, you know, a brighter place. So it's very inspiring, even though it's, it's definitely a lot of work uh, come September 5th and reading all the applications and reviewing, et cetera. Um, the process actually goes where we have an online application, which is what people are completing now. Then we interview the top applicants, and then we select the, the, the final cohort after a pitch night where each of them um, pitched, you know, to a group right. of people. And um, and that's where we choose the final cohort. So definitely the work begins, but it, it's very inspiring and it rewarding. Mu- at it, that. Mu- it must kill you to reject people because there's so much good work going on out there. It's really hard. It's definitely really hard. It is, I, I mean, it's really a it's really um, a beautiful thing to see in our community that right. so many people are doing such amazing work. Yeah, so, that's true. A lot of good sure. work out there. All right. Jenna Belzer is founding director of OU Impact Accelerator. Go to the website, ou.org slash accelerator. You have till September 5th to get those applications in. Jenna, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to speak with you. A pleasure. That was my conversation with Jenna Belzer of the OU Initiative Accelerator a recent guest of ours on JM in the AM. That does it for JM Rewind. Plenty more coming up if you keep it right here at the Nahum Siegel Network.
Thank you.